following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. If you would, open up your Bibles or electronic device that has a Bible on it. We are in uh, the Gospel of John, uh, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. And we are in um, chapter 15, uh, carrying on in our Advent uh, series where we're kind of cherry-picking um, just some passages of Scripture that speak of the banners uh, that we have here uh, the four weeks of Advent. We've talked about hope and love and uh, joy and peace, and as we look at those words, we realize that really every message that we have uh, preached here at Community Gospel really uh, just hits on all of those themes as we approach uh, Christmas Eve um, next week. And before we start, um, let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. It's in your name we pray. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, some of you are familiar with the Gospel of John and some not so much. So let me give you a little bit of background on the Gospel of John. It's a little bit different than the other uh, accounts, the Gospel accounts of Jesus. You have what are called the Synoptic Gospels, and then you have John's Gospel. A Synoptic Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Actually, Luke is Luke-Acts. It's one big book. We break it up in uh, our New Testament Bible for multiple reasons. Um, but you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they kind of tell um, a little bit about Jesus' life from one perspective. And then you get into John, and if you look at John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. It doesn't even talk about Jesus being born. It just openly declares that Jesus is God. And so John is written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 23, it's written by what we see, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine having that title? The disciple that Jesus loved. He is part of what we would call an inner circle of three disciples that Jesus was very passionate about. James and John and Peter being those individuals. So Jesus has a circle of influence of 12, but he has an inner circle as well of three. Tradition calls John's gospel the fourth gospel because it is composed well after the other three accounts. Uh, For those of you that know church history, there's a man named uh, Polycarp in the second century who knew John personally, and he told another man named Irenaeus that John wrote this account while he was serving in Ephesus. So when you read the book of Ephesians, think about that. John is writing similar about Jesus, about 85, 95 A.D., John's gospel is extremely evangelistic. He wants the world to know. He's unapologetically unashamed of the gospel. Christ came, died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God. You can have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ. One of the most key chapters in John is when Jesus is sitting down and he's talking to Nicodemus, a priest. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Because Jesus isn't a condemnation, he's a salvation for those who believe in him. 
And so when we read John's account, we realize that he is making a link for us between the nature of the Old Testament God the Father and the nature of the New Testament God, the same God, who is the Logos, and that is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, Jesus existed But in the New Testament, he was made manifest for us in regards to being Emmanuel, God with us, who dwelled among us. We'll talk about that a little bit next year when we get into Genesis. The other gospel accounts, they talk about Jesus being a king and a servant and the son of man. But John puts a lot of emphasis on Christ being God. He is the deity. He is the son of God. John chapter 8, the great I am. And he writes, so that... John chapter 20, verse 31, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not just have a head knowledge of the existence of Christ, but we may have heart transformation by believing in him. It's interesting, on Friday night, uh, we were at a concert, a community concert. And after the concert was over, I looked at Bethany, I said, isn't it amazing that even pagans sing of the birth of Christ? They know of his existence, but they don't have a heart transformation. We believe, we trust that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. His blood that was shed on the cross, perfect blood, forgives us of our sins. So John says Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's set apart from any other man who's ever lived. And he boldly declares that Jesus, the God-man, has atoned for our sins. And we can confidently place our faith and trust in him. That's John's gospel in a nutshell. Now, we're looking at John 15. So what has happened leading up to this point? What has happened in the first 14 chapters? And what is transpiring? Well, Jesus has revealed the power of God. He's performed miracles. He has preached. He has taught that he is the light of the world. He has said that he is the good shepherd. He's the one who gives everlasting life for those who believe in him regarding his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Now, he knows his time is limited So Jesus starts to get more and more and more direct and to the point. In all these things, Jesus uses object lessons to explain the fact that he is the Christ. And as he gives these object lessons from daily life, he's using these illustrations to show his current disciples and his future disciples, that'd be me and you, who would cling to him to grow in their faith after he departs. So in other words, Jesus looks at it and he says, uh, I'm not going to be around here forever. And, and because I'm not going to be around, you need to know some things on how you're going to grow after I'm not around. And the disciples probably scratch their head about that. They're like, what do you mean you're not going to be around forever? Hold on just a second. We're going to do what? He's like, you're going to die very painful, horrible deaths. It's fun to be my disciple. <laughs> and all these things, though, Jesus has used agriculture to carpentry. And he's used what was common to men to help them see how they could be uncommon for him. They could be extraordinary. And here he opens with the vine. John chapter 15, verse 1. I, as Jessica read, am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Now, why in the world would Jesus be talking about grapes? (laughs) What in the world is happening and transpiring? Why would the disciples' ears just perk up when he talks about grapes? Well, grapes are the most widely grown fruit in the world. They are cultivated 2,500 years before Jesus even arrives on the scene. And central to Israel's agriculture and economy is, ready for this? 
the grapevine. So when you hear the song, I heard it through the grapevine, you just think of John chapter 15. It's a part of Israel's national emblem. A grapevine and its quality is ready for this. Only as good as the rooted stalk, which requires much care. Those of you who are gardeners out there, it requires water. It requires fertilizer. It requires pruning. It requires more attention than a bonsai tree for those of you who love 90s movies. If dead branches are not removed, a disease can spread and it can cause harm or it can cause death. It can ruin that vine. So therefore, new plants are pruned for three to five plus years to train them before being allowed to produce a crop. Now, let me just say that to you one more time. New fruit or new plants are pruned for three to five years to train them before allowing to produce a crop. For those of you who are new believers, God might be training you and pruning you for years until you produce fruit. Just think about that. A good root or a vine, when taken care of properly, can produce quality grapes for a hundred plus years. That is a lifetime. It yields as much as 80 pounds in a single season. In the Old Testament, if you go back, grapes symbolized Israel's fruitfulness in doing God's work on the earth. And the prophets of the Old Testament likened Israel as God's vine. It was carefully planted and it was carefully cared for. However, Israel was in extreme disappointment. It only yielded rotten fruit because they refused to be obedient to God. And so what happened and transpired is Jesus draws from the Old Testament passages like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, and he calls believers here and future believers to abide to remain or to cling to him because he alone is the true vine. You should underline true vine. Because when he says that, what he's saying is, I fulfill what Israel was unable to do, and I'm a fulfillment of God's plan for his people. A also fulfillment of prophecy coming from Psalm chapter 80. In Christ, believers not only find true life, but we're able to produce quality fruit when we abide in Christ. He is the vine. So let's unpack that for a second. What does it mean that he is the vine? Because we don't have a whole lot of grapes growing in Bremen, Indiana. Just straight up. I I haven't seen one. I haven't seen a vineyard around here. So uh, what does it mean? Second part of verse 1. Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. Well, what does he do? What is, what is the vine dresser? Jesus said that God the Father is the vine dresser, and that is the word viticulturist. I learned so much about grapes and studying for the sermon. It's amazing. I was eating them one time while I was studying too at the same time, so that's kind of fun. A viticulturist is somebody who walks through the vineyard, and ready for this? He clips and he cuts and he takes care of the vineyard and the grapes. He walks through and he makes sure that the vineyard is in good condition. So God as a vine dresser, ready for this, is not just central to John chapter 15. It's all over the text. As a matter of fact, Paul, for those of you that know your Bible, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about his gospel ministry, he said, this is a familiar passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God, the vine dresser, made it grow. So he understood it really, really well. He understood that terminology. It's staggering that God cares so much for his people as a vine dresser by giving us a true vine, Jesus. And as a believer in Christ, you have a father in heaven who meticulously is providing care for you in him. And he wants to bring forth good fruit. So just track with that just a second. God is the vine dresser, cares about you. He is meticulous in doing certain things in your life to make sure that you will produce good fruit. That's a good word. Now, the passage continues to verse 2. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, keep in mind, Judas isn't around here. So there's some uh, connotations that are going on for the 12 disciples and for Judas. So they're kind of like curious, like, hey, what happened to Judas? And they're like, oh, we're not going to talk about him right now. But he is going to kind of talk about him a little bit in regards to symbolism. When he talks about branches that bear fruit, Jesus says that God the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the Son, which means true vines are believers. Those who have confessed with their mouth, believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those are the true vines. But God cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. So there's two kinds of pruning. Ready for this? This is like the separation from the sheep and the goats, for those of you who know Scripture. This is the separation from um, the, the wheat and the tares. The first kind of pruning is removing what does not bear fruit. That's non-believers or the dead. God gets rid of those. The second type of pruning is faithful branches or those who are living by faith in Christ. Now, that's, even, that's, that's either really encouraging to you or super frustrating. Full transparency, a little frustrating to me. I'm like, God, you can stop pruning whenever you want. I'm kind of done with that, right? And he's like, well, we're going to do it until you're dead, so get used to it. So successful gardeners, for those of you who are gardeners, right, know that pruning, cutting back the branches, increases fruit bearing. So each spring, the vine dressers came. They cut back each vine to its root stalk. That's the very bottom so that it would bring forth fruit. It would enhance its fruitfulness. Now go to verse 3. Watch this. Already, Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now now notice, he's speaking to his disciples. Those are are the true vines, right? Those are the the guys who are attached to him. And he says, uh, so already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, if you would, underline the word are clean. That's a really interesting word there. The Greek, which the New Testament's written in Greek, is the word cleansed. It also means purged or pruned. So what is happening here? Well, in context, Jesus is speaking to disciples saying how they were clean because they accepted his words and were ready to bear fruit. But Judas is not clean, and he is one of the branches that have been cut off. You have to study the Bible in context. Verse goes to chapter, chapter goes to book, book goes to genre, genre goes to testament, testament goes to the entire Bible. And in context here, there's a message for the disciples. But there's also a message for us, Jesus' disciples. And what he's saying here is he's saying, if you're going to be a fruitful branch, you need to be pruned. 
If you're going to be a fruitful branch, he's got to do some things in your life that are going to be painful. And you shouldn't uh, exit those things. You should welcome those things. So let me just put this in, in massive context for you. So sometimes Jesus is going to whisper in your ear, you should shut the TV off. Sometimes Jesus is going to whisper in your ear, you need to end that friendship with the world. Sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, like, you need to change something. Maybe it's trajectory. Maybe it's a work situation. But he's going to prune you, and you're going to think to yourself, but I'm doing okay. And God's going to look at you, and he's going to say, are you? How's that working out for you? Because God disciplines true believers to strengthen your character and your faith. It's an internal thing before it's manifested in an external thing. We should welcome this and be concerned if it is not transpiring. You should be very concerned if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ and he is not pruning something in your life. There's always an area to work on. God looks at us and he says, I can work on that, I'm going to work on that, I'm going to work on that. And you're going to get to the place where you're going to look at God and you're going to be like, you can stop at any time. He's going to be like, no, because we're having fun. You are. I'm not sure I am. And then he moves in and he says, you have to, ready for this? You have to trust me. Like a child trusts in a parent, we trust in Christ. Look at verse 4. Abide, that's trust, abide. Abide in me and I'll abide in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt the disciples were like, can you repeat what you just said? I'm a little slow. Like, we're fishermen. Can you repeat that? And Matthew's probably like, uh, I'm a tax collector. I get it. Uh, verse 5. <clears throat> I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, ready for this? Apart from me, you can do fill in the blank. Nothing. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying, trust the promise that pruning is going to produce fruit. Why? Well, whoever the writer of Hebrews was said in chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines, he could have said prunes, those whom he loves. We don't run from correction, but we abide in it. Circle that word abide. Abide is a command with an ongoing emphasis. It's not fulfilled in a single act. In other words, you, you don't like abide once and then you're done. You continue to abide. Abiding for the disciples and for all believers means a consistent moment-by-moment decision to follow Christ. Now, the first moment we trust Christ is called justification. You say, I know I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus' blood, perfect blood, covers my sin on the cross. I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the day where the old is gone and the new has come. And if you haven't made that decision, there's a little white book in the chairs. You pull that out, read the gospel, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Become a follower, a child of God. But for those of us who have done that, right, oftentimes people get saved, and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, shelf and that. We'll talk about that when eternity comes. Right? Like when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, oh, uh, I got that. Where did I put that at? Where did I put that card at? Uh, I didn't get a card. And Jesus is going to be like, I don't even know who you are. He's like, because you didn't abide in me. You just put your trust in yourself. You didn't put your trust in a savior. So here, we're not passively as believers waiting to die. We're in active service called worship, meaning we have a lot to do. 
And so, for one to abide in Christ, they have to do a couple things. Number one, you have to accept Christ as your Savior. Number two, you have to continue, I love this word, to persevere in your belief. This is taking every thought captive. This is working out your salvation, for those of you who don't know what that verse means. It's exactly what he's talking about, a continual trust, a continual abiding. Because no fruit can be produced without being obedient to that which you have received. Without faith, no life of God will come to anyone, and no real fruit can be produced. Somebody looked at me the other day, and they're like, don't judge me. And I was like, if you're a believer, guess what? I'm watching if you're producing fruit. And if you're not producing fruit, I'm led to believe, guess what? You're not a Christian. So if your life doesn't look like Jesus, then I don't know if you know Jesus. Don't get mad at me. I'm just saying what I see. I'm not saying it in a bad way. I'm saying it in a way that should provoke you to have that same approach to what is transpiring in your life. Without faith, no life of God will come to anyone and no real fruit can be produced. This is why Jesus said, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. A grapevine branch can survive and produce greenery for a while after it's been detached, but it cannot produce fruit unless it is connected to a root stalk. So Jesus had living dependence upon his heavenly father, and he asked believers to have the same living dependence upon him. Now look at the, second, the first part of verse 5. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. What does he mean by there? He says, every branch or every believer that remains in the vine will produce this fruit. Now, the fruit can be three things. The fruit could be new believers, John chapter 15, verse 5. It could be the fruit of the Spirit. That's Galatians. If you want a good checklist, right, to see how you're doing with Jesus, go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and see how you're doing in producing that fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those other things, right? I always forget one, and my, my kids just instantly like, you forgot, and I'm like, maybe I forgot for a reason. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> or three, it could be both. So the fruit that we bear for the gospel of Jesus Christ is the opportunity of giving somebody else to become a child of God. That's called evangelism. Or we have the ability to be edified by producing the fruit of the Spirit that is outlined in Galatians chapter 5. We cannot bear fruit by ourselves, but only when we're fully dependent upon Him. Now, I think this makes so much sense as Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he said in verse 9, But he said to me, you know this verse, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what, church? Your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. We don't do that a whole lot, do we? We don't look at each other and be like, hey, let me tell you how bad I did yesterday. But let me tell you how great God is. Paul says, I do that so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties in life. For when I am weak, I am strong. So Paul got excited about problems. That's a prayer request that I need to pray. Because oftentimes when I approach problems, I'm like, Lord, I don't think you know this, but there's a storm out there and you're sleeping. And he looks at me and he's like, maybe you should sleep. 
Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, and this is the disciples, I can hear them asking the question, right? Hey, what happens if somebody doesn't abide in you? Well, let me tell you, if somebody doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. So basically what Jesus says is every branch that fails to abide in the vine is removed from the vine as it fails to participate in the life-giving flow of the vine. Jesus says, these will be thrown away like a branch, gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, if you study this passage, just that one specific verse, these words have been translated and interpreted three different ways. Number one, some people believe that the burned branches are Christians who have lost their salvation. That's false. That cannot be true because it contradicts passages like John 3.16, John 3.36, John 5.24, John 10.28, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, etc., etc., so on and so forth. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you're sealed until the day of redemption. You're his child. You might be like wandering, but you're like a candy jar. Pops. And you're in. Now, number two, some people look at it and they say those burned branches represent Christians who will lose rewards but not their salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that's false because Jesus speaks here of dead branches that are thrown away and they wither. They're gone. They're ashes. So it has to be burned branches refer to professing Christians like Judas who are not genuinely saved and are therefore judged for eternity. So, so here's, here's the deal. There's people out there who are professing Christians who have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. There are moralistic people out there who are good people who call themselves Christians who are so far from the cross of Christ. As a matter of fact, we've been doing this thing uh, at the church. We've been walking through a discipleship uh, cohort. And we realize that part of our job as a church is to help people who call themselves Christians come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and truly be saved. We're realizing we live in that society where people need the Lord because they think they already have him. But in reality, they don't. So like a dead branch, a person without Christ is spiritually dead and therefore will be punished in the eternal fire. Judas was with Jesus, and while it seemed like he was a branch, he failed to have God's life in him. And as he departed, his destiny was like that of a dead branch. May that not be said of you. May we welcome the Lord's discipline in our life to produce God's fruit in all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples here and us today. Now, I love verse 7. Watch this. This is is like Jesus, like, land in the plane. Watch this. He says, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. That means whatever I want, Jesus gives me. Isn't that great? Man, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus for the rest of my life. Lord, I'll tell you what I want right now. That is not how that works. When Jesus talks about abiding... He's reaffirming everything that he just said. And in verse 7, the second part, when he says, my words abide in you, the Greek expression words implies the individual words of Jesus. Another Greek expression for the word word is the word logos, which indicates Jesus' entire message. Ready for this? 
Jesus is the author of Scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit. We rest in his words. This is why red-letter versions of the Bible drive me nuts, and I'm reading out of one. Because all of this is the word of God, not just the red letters. When we get to this, we realize that true disciples, believers, do more than just believe, though, what Jesus says. They do more than just believe what the word says. They let those words abide in them. They meditate over them. They consume them. They think about them. They're on their hearts and on their lips constantly. Can you imagine being at your workplace? Somebody looks at you and they're like, hey man, how's your day going? You're like, hey, it's all right. What are you thinking about? John 15, one through eight. A pastor preached on that yesterday. Man, I just been like mulling that in my head. All right, man. Well, have a good day. (laughs) Jesus's words had cleansed the disciples. I think about this all the time. Jesus' words, when he spoke to the disciples, were not just words that were said in passing. They hung on every single one of them. And they said, we need more. This is why people were constantly around him. This is why he's constantly quoting the Old Testament. This is why he's constantly saying that if you abide in me and you abide in my words, then whatever you ask, I'll give it to you because they will be asked to conform to my image. See, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. It's a shield for those taking refuge in him. The proverb could say, for those abiding in him. It's a very similar word. So, so what are we supposed to do? Well, look at the second part of verse 7. Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, which is a faith-based prayer in Christ's words. Essentially, since it is Christ's words and his conditions that control a believer's mind, we pray to conform to the Father's will. This will radically change your prayer life if you let it. That means in situations and circumstances that you find yourselves in, you're no longer praying that God remove you from it. You're praying that your eyes be opened of what he's doing through it. This means that everything that we do and everything that we look look at It will be given to us for the sanctification, the setting apart of the saints. Now, if I was reading that, and I was thinking to it, well, how do I know God's will? I read God's word. Majority of time, people don't know God's will because they don't know God's word. And so here, asking to be conformed to the image of Christ is always a fulfilled prayer that brings glory to God. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now look at verse 8. By this, in the sanctification prayers of the saints, my Father is glorified. When you pray to conform more to the image of Christ, when you pray to abide in me, when you pray to have conviction and encouragement from my words, that's when you're going to bear much fruit. And not only will you bear much fruit, he says you'll also prove to be my disciples. So here, an essential part of being a disciple requires bearing fruit for the Lord as this is how God the Father is glorified. God sends daily sunshine, daily rain to make the crops grow. And he constantly nurtures each plant and prepares it to blossom in its time. This farming analogy that Jesus used here shows how God is glorified when we become into a right relationship with him and bear much fruit according to him. I hear more and more believers asking for stuff 
instead of asking to be conformed to the image of Christ. I hear more believers asking God to get them out of the boat instead of saying, help me to rest in it. A disciple that bears much fruit is one that not only glorifies God, but they can see the proof of being his disciple. My prayer for you this week has been just that. No matter what season you find yourself in, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, that you would pray for the awareness to see God's hand moving in and through everything that you're experiencing. And that you would ask him to help you be set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ, conforming more to his image. Hey, let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, may we as branches abiding in the true vine, Jesus Christ, embrace divine pruning and the discipline of our heavenly vine dresser. If you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Make that decision. It's simple. It's the first prayer you've really ever truly prayed. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah There's so much testimony and truth out there that tell us exactly that. I place my faith and trust in him today. I come like an infant. I don't know a whole lot, but I want a relationship with you. I confess with my mouth that I'm a sinner. I repent of that sin. I place my trust in you. I want to be your child. God, so many of us have done that today. So many of us have made the decision to follow you. And we got to first and foremost confess that we approach you like Christmas. And we just ask you for stuff. When in reality, you're looking at us and desiring sanctification, being set apart, being conformed more to your image. So Lord, in this season, we come to you and we ask for your help. Conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Prune us, convict us, encourage us, teach us. Pry our fingertips away from the things of this world. God, help us to be vines that produce spiritual fruit that would glorify you. So that when we do see you come back again soon, we'd be able to look at you and say, all of this I did for you. All these people, I told them for you. All the glory you get. God, help us as only you can. We're dependent upon you. Help us to abide as we behold you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.